0: It is Wednesday, which means it's time for another episode of The Mad Podcast, conversations with leaders from across the machine learning, AI, and data landscape from Firstmark Capital. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting Victor Reaper Belly, co-founder and CEO of Synthesia, the generative AI video avatar platform that just last month gained unicorn status after raising their Series C round. Victor joins our host, Matt Turk, for a conversation about the Synthesia journey and current platform, lessons learned building a successful AI company, and the ethics of generative AI. As always, if you're enjoying the Mad Pod, go ahead and hit the follow button, and we will be back every Wednesday with a new episode. Now, here's Victor and Matt.
1: Hey Victor, welcome to uh, this podcast. I've been looking forward to the conversation. We're going to talk about uh, generative AI a lot, uh, but maybe to set it up up upfront, Synthesia is the world's uh, number one rated uh, AI video creation platform, meaning that uh, you use AI to create professional videos uh, without microphone cameras or actors. Uh, The platform enables one to turn text Uh, into high-quality videos with um, AI avatars, which is uh, one of the things that the company is uh, mostly known for, uh, and voiceover in over 120 languages. Uh, And I should add that uh, Synthesia uh, just became a unicorn, which is uh, much rarer these days, even in AI, uh, reaching a billion-dollar valuation in a Series C uh, round of financing that uh, literally just closed and that was led by our friends at Excel. Uh, And I should also add that I have been a a very proud investor and board member at the company for a couple of years now. But hopefully we can uh, make this conversation uh, objective uh, and uh, interesting to uh, anyone that may listen to it. So uh, I'd love to start with the uh, origin story of the, the company because uh, obviously generative AI is uh, you know all the rage right now, but um, even w- when you and I first met uh, that was the term did not exist uh, and uh, almost by definition you had started the company uh, you know probably a couple of years before that. So what, what was the vision at the time because in retrospect it seems like a completely crazy idea to start a uh, generative AI company at a time when generative AI did, did just not exist.
2: Yeah, back then, we called it synthetic media. We were hoping that that was going to be the term that would yeah. latch on. Unfortunately, it wasn't. We still have some decks where we say generative AI, like 19, I think. I uh, should have stuck with that. That's great vesio. Um, so the origin story, um, the very kind of, uh, I guess, sort of my path to starting Synthesia. So I grew up in Denmark, uh, in Copenhagen. That That's where the accent's from. And um, figured out in my late teens that uh, I love building products. Um, And that I one day want to start my own company after doing something like four or five years in the Danish startup ecosystem. Um, But what I also kind of figured out during that time was that I just wasn't super passionate about like building accounting software or business process tools, which was sort of mainly the things I've been involved with at that point in time. I'm a huge nerd in my spare time. I love science fiction. I love the kind of weird, wonderful edges of technology. And I've just always been sort of drawn to to that in my life. And I wanna see if I could combine that with uh, also building a great business and making awesome digital products. So to make a very long story, very short, uh, I decided to move to uh, to London Back in 2016, I knew I wanted to start a company, I knew I wanted to do something with deep tech. And I basically just spent nine to 12 months on working with a bunch of really awesome people, uh, some of them who became my co-founders. It was a lot about VR at the time, which had its, uh, I don't know what hype cycle we're in now. I guess we're almost about to enter the the next one. But this is back when Oculus came out, uh, which was a huge milestone for VR. It used a lot of deep learning, um, I guess more machine learning almost back then too understand where the room you are and, you know, make make the headset like work way better than anything we've seen before. And um, but I, I wasn't kind of like convinced that VR was going to be an interesting enough market to build a big company at that time. Um, but I got very interested in this underlying breakthrough in AI that had happened. So this is those of you who are technical, this is back when like CNNs were the big thing, right? And we'd like finally talk a computer to like recognize an image of a cat with like 70% accuracy. Today, we can generate pictures of cats in like 1 million different (laughs) colors and shapes. And we don't bat an eye at it. But that was sort of uh, one of the big things that happened back then. And while I was working on on VR, I met a bunch of really cool people. And one of them was a guy called Matthias Niesner, who was a professor at Stanford at the time. And he'd done... I guess you could take I like the seminal work on um, using deep learning to generate video. Deep fakes is obviously a bit of a dirty word, but that was how most people thought of the technology as back then. And when I saw his research paper called Face to Face, I just felt like I saw magic for the first time. Um, I think probably a bit the feeling that a lot of people have had chatting with ChatGPT or hopefully making a Synthesia video, creating image with stable diffusion. I right? just you feel like there's something so powerful here and it's just obvious that it's going to change the world. Um so we kind of I kind of could just not let that idea go. And I started to build this thesis around how this would impact video production. We knew video back then was really, really important and was, was a massively growing market, right? But we also knew that production of video was, was really difficult. Um so we got a, a bunch of people together. Uh Matthias Niester, the professor from Stanford, became my co-founder. Um so did Lourdes Agapito from UCL in London, also a professor in computer vision and AI and, uh, and Stefan, my, uh, my Danish sidekick, who's a bit more on the, the sales and, and, and finance side of things. And the idea we all gathered around uh, is the same then as it was today. We wanna to make it easy for people to make video content, but we don't think of that as making smaller more affordable cameras. We don't think of that as like a better app that works on your phone for editing video. Those have been the kind of two main vectors for making video easier in the last decade or two decades or so, right? We are building technology. To eventually replace the entire physical production process. Uh, now, six years ago, seven years ago, almost that was very crazy, and the whole journey to get into where we are today had a lot of bumps in the road, to say the least. Uh, but I think we've made great strides towards that. Now we run the world's biggest AI video platform, with more than fifty thousand customers, work with more than thirty-five percent of Fortune one hundred, and we do exactly what we set out to do. Right, we help people make video in a really easy manner, you just open up your browser, select an avatar, you type in the text and you can kind of build your video around it. And then um, then it will give you a video in, in just a matter of minutes. That said, there's still a very long way to go. You know, I, I see ourselves as being 5%, 10% into the overall roadmap. At one point, we want to make people able to produce much more rich and complex video content than what we're known for today, which is this more kind of green screen style presenter, dare I say, maybe slightly robotic type of content um, that we're doing today. right? Um, but the end goal is to be able to produce much more rich and complex content.
1: Great, great. Yeah, I think it's worth double clicking on what the product does today. Uh... I would say both the avatar part and the non-avatar part of the stuff around the avatar uh, because um, I think that's uh, something fascinating by the product and that's something that people may not have realized uh, as well as like how much product goes uh, into the, the, the actual, you know, video creation process uh, in addition to the avatar.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think what we're most known for, and we are at its core, we're an AI company, right? We have a massive R&D team. We're working on, on bringing these avatars even more to life than, than what they are today. Um, and that, that part of the company is essentially about these avatars. Like you go in, you select one of them, you can create yourself with three to four minutes of footage, and then you type up the script and we'll kind of, they'll kind of read that out to the camera. If you'll perform that to the camera, it's maybe a better way of thinking about it. Yeah, you have stock um, avatars, and you can create your own. Your stock avatars, you can create your own, um, exactly. And to interesting insights think like, when we kind of initially built the technology, uh, text to video is what we're calling it, right? And um, we kind of build it and we were sort of like, this is definitely very cool. There is no doubt about that, right? And um, this is like jaw-droppingly cool. The big question was like, who actually has use for this? We had a slight inkling towards that and we ended up being right on that, uh, which was that in the kind of first phases in this year, we are working a lot with um, uh, you know, advertising agencies, sort of the, the, the film industry, and we had this technology that was cool. It wasn't very scalable, took a PhD like, you know, three days to make even just like a 10 second clip. It only worked if you look directly at the camera and we tried to roll this out into the market by saying, hey, you know, this marketing video that Coca-Cola just did, let's make it in 15 different languages, overdub it, change the facial expressions to match that as well. And that's a way of scaling your video content. And in that process, um, we actually managed to build a a, a fairly interesting business. I think we did like $700,000 of revenue on that in a year. So it wasn't terrible, but it just wasn't scalable. It was clearly much more of a service business. But what we figured out during that time was that actually what's much more interesting is that there's billions of people in the world who are desperate to make video content, right? Their house is on fire. Like Coca-Cola's advertising agency's house is not on fire at all, right? They're already making lots of, of great video content. And what we found out was that for those people, if we could give them a 1000 times more affordable and 1000 times more scalable way of making this content, they would be okay with kind of lowering the quality threshold a little bit, especially for particular kind of uh, types of content, right. So we built this product, we put it out to the market. And knowing that the quality of course, like isn't one to one with a real camera, especially not back then still isn't 100% there. But what we saw was just that um, these types of videos essentially became not a replacement for video production, but a replacement for text. And that's a very important part of why we're so successful today, especially in the enterprise. Because what we're seeing is that uh, if you're like the world, one of the world's biggest fast food companies, for example, then you have a lot of internal comms, you have a lot of training, and that could both be training like frontline workers, but it could also be training like a sales team and, and many other things. And what they would use to do is if we take the training example is you're onboarding, you know, millions of frontline workers in your restaurant every single year. How do you do that? You send them a 40 page manual that they have to sit at home, they have to read it, they have to comprehend it, and they have to remember it when they go to work. I think everybody knows that that is not a great way of teaching people. Most people read through it and they'll just forget about it, right? What they can do now is they can make video content instead it can be in the native tongue of whoever is consuming it it can be measured if they're actually finishing it if they're having difficulties with it, they quiz people on it afterwards that in itself is amazing right? because they can make video content video content is much better communicating um, it's a much better way of communicating with people in 2023 but i think the real unlock that we figured out then was that because it's so easy to use Synthesia, the same people who wrote that 40 page handbook can now make those videos instead, right? So you kind of bypassing the video production department. And I think that led us to sort of, I guess, the Holy Grail, of every entrepreneur is that you become one of the first to build an entirely new market by unlocking new capabilities for a new set of people, right. Um, and I think that's very much how you should think about the product, you know, if you visualize it as like PowerPoint 2.0, instead of thinking of this as like Adobe Premiere, visual effects, cool Hollywood things, then i think that's the best way to understand why the product is powerful right because we can go into these very large companies and we can essentially enable anyone at that company to make pretty good video content that is definitely better than text might not yet be better than a real recorded video but we'll eventually get there um, so this idea of replacing text with video is is the kind of key driver of the product and that's what we're building around so we have the ai part which around the voice and the avatars But most videos is not just an avatar talking to the screen, right? Like that's, that's a quite boring video and that's definitely not better than text. So we've built this entire creation tool around it. Uh, You can think of this as PowerPoint, maybe something like a Canva, import your own fonts, put on text, animate things, put in your screen recordings, all those things that make a video a video. Right. And, um, and I think as much as the AI part is interesting and, you know, jaw dropping. And that's what most people kind of are drawn to. I think the whole product that sits around it in terms of the creation of the video, also the collaboration that we've rolled out now with teams, workspaces, commenting, like the less, less sort of flashy features. All those things really contribute to making a product that delivers real utility and business value, not just novelty, right? And that's something that we're obsessed with at Synthesia. uh it's amazing to build technology that's cool and jaw dropping, but we want to sell utility, we don't want to sell novelty uh, to our customers. And I think if you want to sell that utility piece, you really have to think the entire workflow uh, of the user and build around that. And um, I would have say that I think that, that's something we've been we've been fairly good, uh, good, at, good at doing. Okay, wonderful. Um... So
1: much great thoughts here and 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 different directions to unpack this but maybe you mentioned some use cases so maybe maybe let's um, talk about this so the there are two ways people can buy the product they can sell serve online or the or there is an enterprise uh kind of uh, uh, version uh how do people
2: use the product in both cases so I I'd say on the self-service plans, we enable a lot of like smaller businesses to make video content. So this is a group of, of customers who generally haven't had any kind of budget uh, or capability to do video before, right? This can be anything from, I think recently I was looking through some of our latest signups, like uh, a barber in Amsterdam <laughs> and one in Brazil, which just making videos for their Facebook page, for example. Uh, all the way to maybe just like a smaller team in a big company who's just like trying out the product at first but what i said generally say is that for where the technology is at today in terms of the realism and capabilities what we're seeing is that instructional video content it really excels at right it's great for like information dissemination so you're making a video to someone who has to understand something learn something and you want to do that in a better way than just sending them a long word document so that could be customer support it could be uh, customer success it could be sales enablement it could be you know training of frontline workers things like that for those types of use cases the product really excels um as the technology gets better and better i think we'll see much more of kind of like storytelling um, emotional types of video content start to take <laughs> off um, but I think, you know, the I think the honest answer is that these technologies just aren't really there yet. And this is the kind of first market that we've really seen a um, seen uh, kind of very strong product market fit in. On the enterprise side of things, it's uh, it's it's generally Like, you know, one team that'll start working with us. A lot of it again revolves around instructional video content. And that could be the example I described before with something like a fast food company, for example, but it could also be one of our customers who are using Synthesia to train um, and enable their 4,000 person large uh, sales force. This is again where, you know, if you can every time you communicate with someone on your sales team about a new feature, a change in the product landscape or market landscape, if you can increase the information retention by four five X, then sending them an email or pointing them to like a Word document where they can read about it. That's massive, right? That's huge value. And that's again about more, it's more about information dissemination than it's about emotional storytelling and entertaining you and, you know, creating like that kind of content. So I would say that that's kind of like the red thread between the customers. It's a lot about instructional video content more than it's about um, very kind of salesy, emotional storytelling content. But, but that'll definitely be there, I think, before the end of the year, um, as we roll out the next generation of our avatar technology, we'll start to see even more marketing, sales, and those types of use cases emerge as well.
1: Great. I think an interesting question for 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 the, for the company, but for um, AI companies in general, AI companies in in general. Uh, is, um, you know, it, it seems that there is uh, something new that comes up, uh, you know, every day or sometimes several times a day. Uh, as you build a, uh, you know, a truly AI native company where you've, you've developed, a, 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 you know, all all your core uh, technology, how do, you, how do you think about balancing uh, sort of homegrown versus making sure that you're flexible enough to bring in uh, anything new and interesting that um, that may pop up in the world?
2: It's it's a great question. I don't think we have the answer. I don't think anyone really has. But the pace of AI development the last twelve months has just been crazy, right? I think I saw a tweet today that, I think today it's like twelve months ago that Stable Diffusion got released, right? Which is like pivotal moment for generative AI, um, and it 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 just feels like so much has happened since then. I think one thing we're very we we think a lot about is like what do we want to be the best in the world at, right? That's definitely not going to be training like generalized large language models um, for writing the script of your video, for example. What we want to be best in the world at is digital humans creating insanely photorealistic humans that cannot be distinguished from real video uh, that works every time, not one out of 30 times when you give it the right prompt and um, and that are kind of world leading in terms of capabilities and what they can do. right? So that's very much how we think about like our roadmap on the AI side of things. We use lots of LLM providers now. For example, we have a script writing functionality, right, where you can just type in the the topic of your video, and we'll help you write the script. That's not technology we've developed from from the ground up. And I think it's really important to see all these other things that are happening in generative AI as like force multipliers on what we can do really well. Um and make sure that what we're doing really well, we're world leading at. And I think that's put you into sort of an interesting sort of product space, right, where um because everything is moving so fast, and you want to build these like AI native products where you build around AI capabilities, you just don't just like bolt them on. Um, it is really hard, right? And I mean, I think we've we've definitely screwed up a few times where we thought a technology piece of technology was further ahead than it actually was also the opposite way around. But um, I think, uh, I think overall, it's just exciting for builders right now, because I mean, these technologies unlock so much, right? And it means that you can for us for example not just uh, innovate on you know removing the camera and enabling you to like, make these videos of humans you can use in your video editing tool but if you kind of combine that with the capabilities of llms and diffusion models for generating images and other kind of things right you can really build an entirely new product that is very very different from what video editing has been before and i think that that's the real opportunity for everyone uh right now in terms of the ai side of things that is hard um and i think It's interesting to see that there's this new class of companies now where the kind of R and D teams are not a satellite team that's sitting in the corner somewhere and people are just like waiting for them to come up with something amazing to put into the product. For someone like us, that is the core of the product, right? And having two teams, you have one kind of AI research team for us that are doing you know deep fundamental research, advancing the core capabilities of, of avatars and voices. And they have another team, which is more like your traditional kind of SaaS product engineering team that builds the platform, builds the kind of video edits and all those types of things. And they kind of weigh equally to some extent, right? That's That's a very interesting kind of structure of company and how those two teams work together uh i think we'll see kind of a new paradigm of how you build these types of companies well because it hasn't really been done before and every other ceo i talk to who has a company structure like this is trying to figure out what's the sort of right interaction model what's the right org structure and all, that, um, all that type of the all types yeah yeah
1: no, that's great you, you anticipated my my, my next question um, here like how do you i guess balance um uh, you know, moonshot kind of research with deliverables uh, for an AI team, do you and, and and do people, I don't know, get together and agree on a roadmap on what might be feasible? And how do you know when to push or cut your losses on an AI research project?
2: <laughs> it's really, it's really, really, really difficult. Uh, just want to preface that saying that I don't think we have the right answer. But I think the kind of mental model that we're sort of moving towards now is basically looking at teams in terms of like, And how far removed are they from product, right? On the one hand, you have blue sky teams that are really doing things that might not hit the product before two years, because this is betting on like the next really, really big step change. In the middle, you might have something which kind of trying to advance the capabilities of what you have right now. And then you might have a team that's almost like more kind of AI engineering, which is like taking more kind of stuff that already exists, and quick, quick wins, where like in three months, you might be able to kind of ship a feature, right? And then looking at those three things, figuring out like how much resource do you place where? How do you manage the kind of interaction with the product engineering teams? What do you do when an AI piece of research is done? How does that get put into the product? right? You want to try and paralyze those two things to ship faster. But it's also really difficult because with when you're doing AI research, nobody really knows if it's going to take three months or six months or nine months or 18 months or if it's even possible. So it's very hard to plan for, right? Um, and that's that's one of the things I think is, is difficult in terms of like, figuring out the next technical direction is again, this sort of weird balance of like not chasing shiny new objects. If you do that, right, then every t- every week, a new paper comes out, you might want to holy F, we should just drop everything we have and just go for this thing. That's a bad idea. It's also a bad idea to you know, stay in your, oh, no, we're doing it this way. This will definitely work. You gonna have to find somewhere in the middle. Where we've done it is a little bit of spread betting. So kind of like a very kind of core roadmap that we're working towards, but then also making sure that we're exploring like other interesting ways of solving these problems at a bare minimum, just to understand how they work and what their capabilities are and what the limitations are. And then make making sure that you're kind of flexible on the roadmap. But, but it is really difficult, especially when things move as fast as they are right now, right? Um, but I would say one thing we've definitely seen is like chasing shiny new objects is a very real trap. Uh, I think a lot of companies fall into this and it's, it's important to, um, to make sure you get the balance, right. Of, uh, being open-minded to new ways of solving problems, but, but also not, uh, getting pulled in a new direction every, every second month, right. That, that, that's not gonna yield the results that anyone is after either. Yeah. I think. It's I would say maybe something I would add to this as an just interesting observation is because things have moved so fast the last year, um, and I think I think a lot of people this week and last week have kind of argued that the AI hype is waning, which I definitely think is true. It's also, we have we had so much new technology that came out and there's so many, uh, you know, interesting things you can do with it. It's so accessible, right? Like uh, LLMs, everyone can go in and try and use it and be impressed at how good they are. Same thing with image generation, Synthesia videos and things like that. But I think what we're also finding now is that actually like it's very different doing a cool Twitter demo and actually putting something into production. So if you take like the large language models, for example, it's magic technology, it's amazing. I'm by no means downplaying it. Um, but I can you know say as someone who we're definitely using them in production, right, they're not production ready for 95% of the tasks that people think that they want to use them for. They'll probably get there, but there's still a lot of problems with these technologies. And they will just take longer, I think, than people anticipate. Um I think that's also when, when things are compressed so much that people start all these projects and if the future looks so bright you could do, build everything with it and then you get into this sort of real movie at right now where people are figuring out hmm, how much do you actually want to trust the output of these models uh do you really want to put this on like high stakes things in your company and if you don't want to do that then all of a sudden you have to start building a whole ux around making sure that you are fact-checking these models have you know the right kind of product that sits around it in place to make them work in production and that's that's a very difficult thing than just like our, our, an API call to open OpenAI, for example, which I think a lot of people thought they could just build entire workflows around.
1: Yeah, it, it seems that the winning model that seems to be emerging is this concept of full stack uh, AI company. And uh, I mean, that's very much what Synthesia is, where this work at the foundational level, at the AI level, and then there's a software layer and uh, around uh, workflow and collaboration, and then there's another layer around verticalization and user touching um, kind of like features. Do you, do, 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 I mean, would you agree with that? Is that like the, the uh, you know, one of the most uh, likely to succeed kind of way of building a, a company or or are there uh, other sort of uh, potential models for success in, in building an AI company?
2: Yeah, I I think I agree. I think it depends a bit what what your kind of desired outcome is, right? I think if you're bootstrapping and just want to build a great business for yourself and want to have 15 people employed, probably you could build a great just like wrapper company. But if you're building just a wrapper company, you probably shouldn't be 300 people and raise a lot of VC money um, that that might not end out the way that that you envisioned. Um, I think in terms of building a full stack AI company, I agree. I do think that an added dimension to this is if you really want to build something big, I think it's quite important that you're not just building a company, which is kind of an existing product with some AI bolted onto, right? Because I think incumbents, um, also as easy as as it is to build something on OpenAI API uh, for someone who's just starting out, as easy as it is in theory, at least, for a big company to do the same thing, right? So I think it's really important to think about the product that you're building, building that AI first, and thinking deeply about what are you doing differently than incumbents, and how does AI change not just like one feature in the product, but the kind of value proposition of the product. So if you take something like customer support, for example, which is an obvious use of LLM, right, it's sort of fairly low stakes, you can fine tune the model on your knowledge base, and you can probably get something out that works pretty well. There's probably people out there right now with like starting companies around doing that, not realizing that if you're like one of the big chat support companies out there today, right, they can also just take the OpenAI API, and they already have built the collaboration, they're enterprise ready, they have all these things. So that's the only thing you're changing is just that in the chat box that all companies already have on their website, because they're using ADA, Intercom, something like that, um, that's not a very defensible company, even if you build a full stack, right? You wanna rethink something fundamental. And I, I would humbly say that with Synthesia, I think we've kind of hit on that a little bit because we're not actually replacing video production, not replacing anything in the enterprise. Um, and I feel like it's a good kind of acid test for what you're doing. Um, are you replacing something in an enterprise? Or are you selling something that's net new to them, right? I don't go to my customers and say, hey, you should stop using Adobe Premiere, or you should stop using whatever other video editing application they're using. This is something that's net new for you, and this is a new technology you should adapt doesn't have to be completely like that, of course, but I think if you imagine just a scale of like selling something that's completely new, no one has seen it before in the enterprise, and you're like trying to rip out a piece of existing software, because you have some smart AI features, I think you want to screw more towards being something that's kind of like net new, right? Um, sure. I think that's one interesting lens to view through.
1: No, that, that's that's definitely a very really interesting lens, and that that tends to lead to the conclusion that um, actually the universe of uh, sort of AI-native or generative AI startups that one can build is actually more limited than people thought six months ago, where like everything's impossible. But in in reality, the opportunity for entrepreneurs uh, and the investors who love them are actually more narrow because you need to. Just create something that's that's new and different, uh, as opposed to enhancing something uh, with a new technology. I, uh, I
2: agree, and yeah, yeah. I, I just, uh, I think it's 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 kind of interesting, right? Because like the history repeats itself with this, and I think what we've seen the last one year is that like ninety five percent of people immediately go to kind of like first order thinking, right? Like, oh, this could make like this chatbot better. This could make my script writing thing better, or whatever. And that's just rarely how technology pans out, right? I think what we have yet to see, we're slowly starting to see it, is how all these technologies will fundamentally change like in my world video, for example, video today is like a, is a generally like a broadcast medium, right? You, you have one video and you show that to like millions of people. That's very much a constraint of having to work with a camera because you're not going to film a million different videos for a million different people. That would be completely unfeasible to do with a camera, right? But, but now that we are starting to generate video and image and audio content by a code that opens up a bunch of new possibilities, we don't really yet know how that's going to pan out. But I'm pretty sure that in five years time, AI video is going to look very different from a normal video, just as I think that AI voice is going to look very different from what like uh, a voiceover actor does today, right? It opens up a lot of, of new markets and possibilities. And to give a very different analogy to that, I think, uh, because music production is my hobby, right? I, I, I think it's very interesting to see how technology gets has been adopted in that world. If you think back to when drum machines was invented, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, that, they were invented to actually replace drummers, right? The idea was that you can just use a drum machine and you don't have to record real drums anymore. Same thing with synthesizers and and other kinds of technologies. And it turned out that nobody really wanted to replace their drummers or their real pianos with these types of software. But they opened up a bunch of new things. It became a new genre: electronic, house music, techno music. All those things kind of derived from those technologies, right? That didn't happen the first day the drum machine was released. Took some time for people to figure out what to do with this stuff. But I think there's also something to take uh, for people, you know, in the business world of not just not just falling into like the first order thinking, right, the obvious answer to what this technology going to get used for, I think, if you try and take a step back and think from first principles, how is this going to fundamentally change this technology or this medium, um, and build a thesis around that, I think you'll have a higher chance of success. Because if there's one thing we've seen is that um, technology is, is hard to predict, but it always it it rarely it rarely kind of pans out the way that uh, the McKinsey consultants predict in the first report, right? That that's rarely how the world kind of unfolds.
1: Yeah, let's talk about the data part uh, a little bit as well, because uh, obviously that's uh, one major major topic in in AI and for startups um so there is uh, obviously that big race uh, you know on the lm front to just sort of crawling the internet and also having access to some private uh, databases uh, and all sorts of uh, you know ethical and legal and copyright questions that come up with with that like how, how have you thought about the data aspect of building uh, Synthesia?
2: So I think we're at a really interesting point in time right now. If you go back like one and a half year or one year, maybe even, then most companies doing AI was building much smaller models than what we're seeing today. right? You'd get like a, a smaller quantity of high quality data and that you'd like train a synthetic voice or you know predictive system for whatever thing that that you wanted to do. and um, in in that world, it was generally at least. A lot easier to kind of be data compliant and, and just like go out and procure the data that you actually needed to train your systems right uh, to give you like one example let's say you're training like a, a text to speech system. Then you know, with the kind of old school paradigm, how you would do that, maybe you would need like a couple of, of hundred hours of data to train your initial model and you'd need like you know 30 minutes of your data to train your voice that is within the realm of what's like um, you know feasible to get and pay away to get, you pay some voice actors to build the initial data set, you could build your technology, and then you have a completely clean data set, right? And that's that's basically how we've kind of always run the company. Now what we're seeing is that the bigger the models get, the more data they ingest, the better they become, right? So some of the kind of state-of-the-art text-to-speech systems today, they're not trained on like 300 hours of data, they're trained on like half a million or a million hours of data. Once you get to that scale, it becomes very, very difficult to attain that data without Basically scraping the internet, right? Which is, of course, what a lot of these companies have have done. And if you go go to you know large language model type of scale, basically these technologies are not going to work on just internet scale data. And at this point, where you know, that's not going to be, it's never going to be possible to get consent from everyone on the entire internet to train your system, right? Like like OpenAI has has, has done. So. I think that's interesting because we now have a class of technologies that are basically impossible to build unless you scrape the internet. And uh, it's to be determined whether that's legal or not, but there's a lot of lawsuits going on right now. And I think it presents a lot of interesting questions for people who build AI companies. Right? Uh, What I'm really just hoping for is clarity as soon as possible. We've kind of decided to take uh, a route where we only train on clean, compliant data, as other companies were not doing that. And right now you're flipping a coin. That either maybe you know this like scraping business um, is going to be okay. We're going to determine that as long as you're not reproducing any of the original content, it's okay. Your computer can kind of browse the internet and understand what an image looks like or what a human voice sounds like. Um, or it's going to be at a different world where if you're training on data you're not you don't have access to it and they're not compliant, you're going to get in, in big trouble, right? Um, and that's gonna kind of be interesting to see how that that's gonna pan out. Um, as I said, like from the beginning, we've sort of always procured our data sets. We are only training on clean data and I wanna keep it that way. Even though it's a lot harder, I do feel like that's gonna be, I feel like it's morally the right thing to do first and foremost, but I also think that um, as we progress further and further into generative AI, they really, big enterprise customers will care a lot about this stuff. Uh, we already seen that today, right? A lot of big enterprises are restricting people from using ChatGPT because they're afraid that it'll spit out copyrighted content. And um, they're not comfortable with using models that right, you haven't trained on clean data, right? Um, and I think we're gonna see that a lot in the next uh, couple of years, that this is gonna be a requirement for big companies to work with generative AI. Adobe is not a good example of this. They train Firefly, which is their image generator on entirely on compliant data. I forgot which stock provider they work with, but they trained on, they also have their own stock universe, right? So they trained it on, on all that data. And uh, that basically means that if you go into the Adobe Firefly um, you know functionality in your Photoshop and you type in make me an image of Spider-Man, it's not gonna understand what you mean because there are no images of Spider-Man in the original data set, which means that you as a customer are completely um, you know, there's absolutely no chance you'll generate something that's that's potentially copyrighted or might get you in trouble, right? And this is what I think we're going to see a lot more of uh, in the coming years.
1: While we are on the topic of um, legal matters and ethical matters, um, you mentioned the term deepfake uh, at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, how do you how do you think about this uh, right now? I mean, obviously, that's the uh, the you know that could be a good reaction that people could have when they see avatars and imagine that you can make uh, Tom Cruise uh, speak in your voice and, and all the things. How do you, what safeguards have you put in place, and how do you think about the the topic right now?
2: Yeah, so I think AI safety is of course is a huge topic uh, right now and something that that we've been thinking about for. Almost seven years since we found the company on our ethical framework. I think there is, uh, you know, I mean, there's lots of things to unpack here. I think for us, or for me, there's sort of two, you know, angles I look at this through. One is like, how do we secure Synthesia for not being misused by malicious actors? Um, I think that one is uh, that one is very much around like consent. So we would never create an avatar of someone without their full, actual, explicit consent, right? You can't just go in and upload video images of someone that you don't know. Um, and the second one is content moderation. So that's something we're investing heavily in, trust and safety. Uh, basically, we take a quite hard stance on like what kind of content you're allowed to create on Synthesia and what kind of content you're not allowed to create on Synthesia. As with anything content moderation, um, we're not perfect. We're always improving. And um, it is really difficult to ascertain if someone is making great videos about how blockchain works, or if they're trying to push you into a get rich quick scam, right? That, that's hard to do automatically. But those are some of the, the things where, you know, we, we go in and and, uh, and and actually moderate the content at the point of creation, right? So you can't even create the video if you're uh, creating content about the topic um, that we don't allow you to. Then I think the second part, part of it is, what can we as society do to ensure that these technologies are not misused? They definitely will be misused. There's no doubt about that. Uh, this week, there's been a big story about Worm GPT, which is an open source GPT clone that's basically been fine tuned for cyber criminals to use. Um, that, I think everybody knew that was going to happen, but really sad to see that uh, out there in the world right now. And I think what we'll see is that most big companies will Put guardrails on the technology that will ensure that it is that harmful use is minimized. OpenAI does the same thing, right? You can't get OpenAI ChatGPT to say a lot of things if you ask it how to make a bomb. It just it will not respond. But the open source world, obviously, we can't really gatekeep these things, and I think we'll see that a lot of harm, harmful use of these technologies will emerge from kind of like the open source uh, world. And That's not because I'm against open source. Um, I'm very pro open source, but that's just a reality. We have to kind of figure out what we we want to do about, right? So that that could be a very long uh, sort of um, topic, but I think we essentially have to rethink how the entire kind of internet ecosystem works if we really want to build a trusted internet. Uh, We probably want to have something like an SSL type of standard, uh, but for content so that when you watch a video on YouTube or Facebook or TikTok, whatever you have some kind of an idea of the provenance of that video. Who created it? How was it created? Has it been altered since then? And essentially give it like a green check mark if it's trusted. And if it's not a trusted, we don't know where it's from. We don't know how it was created. You'll, you'll get a, a a kind of a a red check mark or, or a warning or something like that, right? But that is... That's, That's a pretty humongous project uh, to undertake. We're part of the C2PA content on all content. Which, by the way, is
1: is a a fascinating idea because it means flipping the logic, like assuming that all content is fake, except
2: it's proven uh, not fake. Exactly. And I think it's like, it's got to be, it's a massive task, right? And it's going to take a long while, I think, for this to materialize. But YouTube has done it, right? If you upload a video to YouTube today, they'll listen to the soundtrack. And if there's a copyrighted piece of music in there, which they check against a database of all the world's copyrighted music, They'll slap an ad in there, and uh, they'll they'll uh, you know pay something back to the to the rights holders. So it does work for music today, of course. Like the catalog of all the world's copyrighted music is is still small compared to all the content in the world, but um, we do have some. We have seen a system like this actually work in production before, right? And always I always talk about this like Shazam, but for every piece of content, right? You want to be able to have a piece of content and just get the information like how and when was it created. but I'm we're, we're part of the Content Authenticity Initiative, which is led by Adobe. And that's all about essentially fingerprinting content. Um, and I do think that this is a very, very interesting solution to making the internet, internet uh, and content internet more trusted as these technologies evolve. Great.
1: And maybe to, to wrap up zooming out, uh, leaving your, uh, synthesis at, um, uh, off what, what, uh, what else do you find interesting in AI these days or generative AI, whether that's, I don't know, a company, a product, a, a project, uh, you know, any, any sort of tip and recommendation for people listening to this who may want to explore, uh, you know, other, other things.
2: I think there's so much interesting um, stuff that's going on right now. i will say um, one thing I'm very interested in right now are companies who aren't selling the tools but actually creating the content using generative AI. We've seen some pretty wild successes with this. Um, a company co- creating like an entire kind of manga, um, you know, fiction series, for example, using generative AI. Where essentially the value prop here is that you can build um, amazing content at you know. A thousand times the speed and a thousand times less cost than you would otherwise have to do. And I think it's a great example of, you know, it's still about telling a great story. Like the people who are behind this are still great storytellers. They've just automated the production process, which allows them to scale up significantly the production and create much more kind of side content as opposed to kind of just the main storyline. And this is something that's commercially already very successful, right? So that's interesting. I think something like character.ai uh, has probably surprised a lot of people where that they're not selling the tools to build chat interfaces, right? They're actually selling you a chat experience where you get to talk to a computer. And a lot of people really, really like this. Um, and... I think it goes a bit back to the point I made earlier, right? Of like the most successful companies in this will do things that seem weird and that are kind of off center. And it's essentially a new media format. And I think that's what's being demonstrated by something like Character AI, right? Like that's actually a product where you're talking to a computer and people are paying for it and people love it. That's not the first thing people would imagine when, when you think of these technologies. Um, and I think there's lots of other things uh, like this. But I, I really think that one of the biggest opportunities right now is actually not necessarily selling the tools. It's actually creating the content and monetizing that content um, because the tools are are becoming so good now that that this becomes very, very viable.
1: Yeah, could not agree more on uh, character AI. Like I'm saying this as somebody that was um, chatting uh, over the weekend with uh, French Emperor Napoleon um, and telling him that the movie was uh, (laughs) done after him. And he asked me uh, who who was uh, playing him and I said uh, Joaquin Phoenix. And he was very pleased and thought that was a good choice. So that was that's how I spend my Saturday evening, which is you know not at all a weird experience. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, that feels like a really good uh, place to live. It thank you so much, uh, Victor. Really enjoy the conversation as always, and um, you know as. Uh, Somebody, again, who has a biased opinion on this, you're you you, you you're building an absolutely incredible company and it's been a, a remarkable journey. So uh, I look forward to uh, your continued success and really appreciate your spending time with us today.
2: Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. fun. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thanks for joining us for the MAD podcast. We're back here every Wednesday with new conversations with leaders in the machine learning, AI, and data space. And if you like this show, you can also find a video recording of not only this episode, but many, many more over on the Data Driven NYC YouTube channel. Thanks again, and catch you next week.